0: Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 82 of Yogaland. So I am wrapping up our holiday series this week. I hope you found these episodes helpful. If you have, please leave a review on iTunes. I'm just going to get it out of the way early, get the ask out of the way early. The reviews are really helpful. They move me up in the ranking of the iTunes store so more people can find and listen to the podcast. Today's guests are Lizzie Lassiter and Judith Lassiter. I've had them on the podcast before. They were just, actually, I had them on separately before because we could not figure out a time for all of us to talk together, and we figured it out this time. So it was a lot of fun. I will say one thing. Last time I posted them on Instagram, I said they were mother-daughter goals for me, this time, one of the things that I thought was so sweet about the interview is that just from a personal perspective is is how much I could hear the love in Judith's voice, the love she has for her daughter. It was just amazing. Judith has a new book coming out the day after Christmas. It's called Restore and Rebalance, Yoga for Deep Relaxation, because as you know, she's the restorative queen. And she had not, as it turned out, written a restorative book since the 90s, I think she said in the interview when I asked her about it. You can order the book on Amazon In this interview, we really just straight up talk about restorative yoga. It's a kind of yoga that I have personally talked about before is hard for me to do, especially after the birth of my daughter, just feeling like I'm either quote unquote too busy or like, it's hard for me to slow down in that way and do that level of self care. It's not as hard for me to meditate, interestingly enough. So this episode was a huge inspiration for me, and I am certain that it will be for you too. I wanted to start at the very beginning and, you know, ask restorative yoga is the centerpiece of a lot of your teaching. And I'd love to know what your definition, Judith, is of restorative yoga, and then why you feel it's so important.
1: Thank you for asking. I do believe that the term restorative yoga could be somewhat humorous because I think what is the other yoga, destructive yoga? Why do we even need to have this term called restorative yoga? And I want to give a little preface before I give you my definition, if I may. It's that when yoga became this round of yoga in the late sixties started coming out, it was associated with the Beatles and the Maharishi and they started using sitars in their music and there was this people were dropping acid and finding god and and it was a time of everything was thrown up in the air politically sexually and spiritually and there was a massive questioning of authority and what that meant and so a lot of people looked to the east quote unquote or the metaphoric east at least to find other things like Buddhism and Taoism and yoga. And when we began to learn yoga from the first, you know, Indian teachers who began to teach it, it was very different. It was in a darkened room, loose clothes. You did a pose, you rested between each pose and reflected on it. And of course you did Shavasana. But as, as yoga, the plant was uprooted From its traditional roots in India and repotted, if you will, in the West, it began to take on the attributes of the West until we find in today's world that yoga is generally associated with a physical exercise that is strenuous. And Shavasana is not necessarily a part of it. Self-reflection is not taught. The wider Ashtanga or eight-limbed yoga, where there are ethical precepts which precede the practice of asana, are not included in the practice. And so there was a gap in there somewhere that I began to sense about the need for rest in my own. It was created by the loss of my twin brother, and that was so profound I couldn't do handstands. Mm -hmm. Some say I just started doing these supported poses. I had learned from BKS Ingar the use of props. It just, I needed the world to hold me. Hmm. I needed that to support me. I needed the props to support me. I needed all kinds of support on a level. And then I began to realize and look around and, and see how many other people needed that. So I developed this course of training teachers to teach nothing, basically, <laughs> is my joke. I'm going to teach you nothing for this 30 hour training. But it will take a lot of props to Mm -hmm. do nothing. Mm -hmm. So restorative yoga to me is the use of props to create positions of comfort and ease to facilitate health and relaxation. And sort of coincidental with this interest that that I was developing through my own life and my own needs was the the studies on stress started coming out. And all the effects of stress. And this was an antidote to that. And today there's the additional stress of our devices, which I just saw a study yesterday or the day before, how it's reshaping children's brains, literally causing their brains to function in new ways. Hmm. And how important it is that they don't have that so early. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is to me. It's pushing the pause
0: button
1: Mm -hmm. and it's creating a self-reflective intention, which is not part of our daily life.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting that you say, you know, you, you decided to start teaching teachers how to teach the art of nothing or the art of relaxation. I think all the time, now that my daughter is school age, I see already in kindergarten, how, much of the focus is on accomplishing tasks. And that we don't actually teach people to relax. It is an art. (laughs) It is an art, especially in our, like you said, especially in our culture. I feel determined to change that in my daughter's school life somehow. I don't, I mean, I don't know that it will really rub off if no one around me is teaching their kids that,
1: There was an article in a Buddhist magazine years ago that I read about a math teacher in a very troubled high school. Now, I think troubled in high school are the same words, but he was in a troubled high school and he was a Buddhist teacher. And he decided before he taught four or five math classes a day to suggest to the students that they all sit for one minute, Mm -hmm. just quietly, just sit quietly for one minute before the class Began no dharma, no poly words or Sanskrit words, no instruction on how to sit, nothing. Just one minute of mm-hmm. sitting. And the kids, oh, they moaned and they groaned, but then they started liking it. And if he occasionally would forget, they would say, you know, Mr. Smith, we didn't sit. And pretty soon it started spreading out in the school. And then everyone was doing it hmm. before every class. And truancy went down, violence went down, and grades went up. Oh wow. And he did not teach technique or call it meditate he 1 minute of silence sitting.
0: Yeah, it's really just the simple act of being quiet and allowing things to be as they are.
1: Feeling yourself inside and you could introduce that. The teachers would love it. It would settle the kids down. Yeah. As a way to do the task in hand or the you know the, listen to the story. It's it's such a simple thing and it re- inspires me all the time that I don't have to create this magic thing. I don't have to re- recreate the wheel and come up with some new thing. If I can just be quiet and sit there for one minute, it will completely change my neurology and my body chemistry.
0: hmm hmm yeah. So I was actually gonna ask Lizzie, just, you know, you grew up in a household where yoga was modeled for you and restorative yoga was modeled for you. At what point in your life did you decide to actually give it a try? At what point in your <laughs> development did it start to make sense to slow down?
2: For me, it did take a little while. I remember going to the Featherpipe Ranch. And as a child, I wouldn't go to the yoga classes at all. Sometimes I would sneak in and ring the bells at the end of Shavasana,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, four years old, eight years old. And then I remember a shift when I was in high school where I think probably I became more conscious of my body in the way that uh, girls do. And I thought, oh, the active yoga is maybe good for me mm-hmm. as exercise. So I started coming to the active classes and I enjoyed them. But I always skipped the afternoon classes, which were restorative with mom. And I always said, oh, that's so boring. I'm going to go swimming or lie on the dock and lie in the sun, things like that. So it definitely took a while before I befriended Shavasana first, and I began practicing ashtanga when I lived in Los Angeles as an undergrad. And I started doing longer and longer shavasanas there after my practice. Hmm. And where I really think I had a profound shift with restorative was after I moved to Europe, and I had a bit of a depression. I had changed my whole life and moved to Europe, and I was uh, having trouble finding work as an architect in German (laughs) and. I found my way back to restorative yoga. And I found that it was such a soothing balm for my nervous system. And it was exactly, yeah, it was exactly what I needed at that time.
0: It's so interesting that you both, from the stories that you just told, that it was an experience of anxiety or depression that really kind of spurred you into this practice.
2: Yeah, and for me also I had I had started getting more into meditation through going to India but I had trouble with Vipassana meditation. Me too. And I Me too. <laughs> uh, and I found this kind of connection where I could move through the restorative pose into a meditative state and it's as if it started to become rehearsal for meditation or a backdoor into meditation. And actually, I remember, if I can just say, I remember one profound moment where I thought, where it really clicked. And I thought I need to pay more attention to this. And it was in London, mom, I don't know if you remember, you were teaching for yoga campus, your teacher, relax and renew teacher training. And I flew from Austria to London to just to visit mom I was still working as a designer just to visit mom because she was in Europe. And I had a horrible landing at Heathrow, something I'd never experienced. And I really had a a strong fear of like a death fear moment. Mm -hmm. Like we it was storming so much. We landed. The wind blew the plane and then the pilot, like it it was so scary and the pilot accelerated and took off again. Wow. And we didn't know what was happening. People were screaming. It was really terrifying. And I was by myself with all these German businessmen flying from Frankfurt and I thought, this is how it ends. (laughs) (laughs) Me Me and the bankers. And then I took the tube to mom's workshop and I showed up and I was totally shaken. And I just said, mom, like I, I, I said what had happened. And it was mid workshop. It was the first day. And she just gave me her lead assistant, Adeline, and said, Adeline, give her sideline shavasana go. And Adeline just piled 10,000 bolsters on me and put me in the most fantastically delicious restorative pose. And I actively felt and consciously watched my nervous system turn over. Hmm. Yeah. from this sympathetic fear mode into parasympathetic. And that was a profound moment where I thought, okay, I've got to start paying more attention. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I love that you say that you felt like it was a doorway into meditation because I see that. And I was, I was going to ask both of you that question. Do you, do you see restorative yoga as kind of a bridge to meditation for people, for those of us who do a lot of asana, And like you said, you know, asana is getting faster and it is getting more and more active. And there are, you know, great upsides to that. But it seems like it's a nice complement to still using the body, but in a quieter, you know, more, you know, in stillness, using the body in stillness, but also being really comforted by the props. Chapter two,
1: Patanjali, verse 46, Diram. Sukham Asanam. Yoga Sutra Patanjali, Pada 2, verse 46. Definition of asana, stiram sukham asanam. Abiding in ease is asana. So, an asana, it turns out, is something in which you are still and deeply at ease with yourself in the moment. Mm. So, the asana is, we are, I believe, no matter what the form of it takes, we are to reflect on the internal experience of it, whether it's Trikanasana or Shavasana. And not the external performance of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very interesting because we tend to think of asanas as movements that are uncomfortable, <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's movement that is to, by contrast, show you this inner stillness, so that you learn to have an outer shape, but that that and, and at the same time be aware that the inner stillness is unshaken, untouched, unmolested by the shape of the body or the the shape of the experience in which you find yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. And and that's what it, it is to me. It's the residue of that stillness of the reconnection with that stillness. That is the asana. And that's what I believe shavasana is really important. I call it the tadasana of restorative yoga, the baseline pose, because it is a position which neurologically and physiologically manipulates the nervous system into that, parasympathetic, deep rest, repair, restore state. And it is meditative Mm -hmm. because people begin to realize often for the very first time how agitated their mind is. And they will come to me and say, I can't do Shavasana because it agitates me. Mm. And I say to them lovingly with a wry smile and a twinkle in my eye that perhaps it showed them the agitation that was already there and this is a process i call disidentification in which they begin to see thoughts as not who they are that is the foundation of all spiritual teaching to stop identifying with your thoughts it's not to be calm and mm-hmm. not have thoughts you can't you can't do that but you cannot Believe them, dance with them, reinforce them, fan the flames of them. And often people have their very first experience of disidentification with the thoughts in Shavasana. Mm
0: -hmm. And the
1: reason I think, and I'll close with this, a lot of people in the yoga world, they do Shavasana, quote unquote, but they don't really because a five minutes is not a Shavasana. It takes about 20 minutes to get into that deep state. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is because they're not comfortable they're they're not using enough props to get all the all the joints in flexion to feel warm to feel supported to have the darkness of something covering the eyes either a little hood over the face if you don't want it on the face or a washcloth or a yoga eye bag but the darkness the stillness the introspection the deep sense of comfort I have found that once I'm able to prop that each person as fits their body they cannot physiologically resist relaxing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a delicious manipulation, if you will, of our nervous system to allow that quietness and allow that disidentification to occur because that is what solves a lot of suffering in the world. But the way I think about something doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And you're right. You're right. That Developing the witness is easier to do, I think, when you are in a relaxed state. I mean, like you said, it should be there too, when you're moving through. It can be there. That's the first step. Right. You see,
1: That's the first step is developing the, the mindfulness witness. But there's a deeper, ste- a deeper step, which I call bodyfulness, in which you stay in your belly you stay in emotional sensory place and we're so intellectually oriented and mentally oriented in our culture that we forget the body we don't know what to eat we don't know if we're hungry we have a pain we just want a pill the deeper way of, of being in consciousness is is it, it, consciousness is of the brain and awareness is of the belly Hmm. I mean, when you when you feel what you're feeling in your belly and you go there, there is an even deeper shift. Everything's about the pelvis. Everything's about the pelvis.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've heard this. Can you talk a little bit more about this? How would you instruct that in a restorative class?
1: If you just start talking about it, it's not going to help. Part of it is the way you set people up, giving openness to the belly, softening the belly, you know, in child's pose, really letting the belly be concave and rounding the lumbar spine and softening the belly, opening the belly, as I said before, this kind of and bring their attention to what's in the belly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because what integration is about is untying the knots, the psychic, emotional, physical knots in us. And that cannot be done with thought that has to be bigger than thought. And what is bigger than thought is sensation. Because sensation only lives in the moment. That is why women have more than one baby. (laughs) You cannot recreate the sensation
0: of the past. Right. Interesting.
1: You can remember that yesterday you were in labor and that it was uncomfortable or that you hit your shin on the bed, edge of the bed. But sensation is always in the present. When you take that first bite of a flourless chocolate cake into your mouth and the sensation of the smooth, cool, sweet chocolate fills your mouth, right? That's what we need. We need one taste. because. The second taste, it diminishes the third taste. You're trying to recreate that sensation and sensation lives in the moment. And when people go into their belly, when you remind them through breathing, feel a sensation of breathing, not just the action of breathing, feel the heaviness, like, right? Have you ever had this? Let me say this. Have you ever had that sensation where you had the dinner that you really wanted, like the perfect dinner for you, the taste, the color, and you ate just the right amount. And then your belly just feels happy. (laughs) No, it's not your taste or your stomach. It's like your whole guts are like humming. Mm-hmm. Like right now, what's going on in your gut? For me right now? It- yeah, you don't, have to, you don't have to say, but yeah. I mean, what's warm and is it warm and happy there? Because it, most of the time when you tune into it in the day, or at least for me, this is true when I tune in, it, there's a tightness in my diaphragm and a tightness in my belly. And maybe that's where anxiety comes from.
0: Yeah. So, so one question I have related to this is for people who might have so much anxiety that they're actually afraid to put themselves in an open pose, even a supported pose and relax and sit and be with themselves. How do you help those people?
1: You prompt them more towards sitting.
0: Hmm.
1: Gives more prominence to the brain. And if, the, cause I know that some people cannot lie down and I want to finish with this cause I'm so excited to hear what Lizzie has to say about it. I believe that lying down in Shavasana with your arms and legs open and your eyes covered is an act of courage. That mm-hmm. uh, It's too much for some people. And it's not that that isn't good, quote unquote, good for them or healthy for them. It's just too fast. And that there are people who I would say need to do some therapy around that what is bubbling under that wants out that they're afraid of needs to be brought to light. Yep. And my personal experience in therapy is those things, the thought of how much pain there is, if I really say it out loud, is never, never as great as the actual doing of it. And the actual doing of it is so relieving. Hmm. But I think that if it's really extreme that they can't lie in Shavasana and the, and the, the immediate thing is put them near the wall, have them sit leaning back on bolsters and, you know, upright, maybe don't cover the eyes, don't have anyone adjust them. They can keep their eyes partly open, this kind of thing. Maybe privately encouraging them to go talk to someone about, about this might be useful.
0: Right. To get some additional support where they need it. Yo, Newsflash yoga teachers can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah. Lizzie, do you want to add to that? Or I could ask you a different question.
2: I, well, one thing I like to say, I love this word bodyfulness from mom. I have immediately appropriated it into my teaching. One thing I like to say about restorative yoga when I explain it to people is that what we do is we put the body in a position that is so deeply relaxed that it can't resist going into a relaxation response, and then it brings the mind with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In my understanding and my teaching, there's less emphasis on the mind itself. Mm-hmm. It's just along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one question I always get from the students, often sort of on the second day of a teacher training, and then they'll come in and they'll say come up to me you know I have a question um I don't know if it's appropriate you know if you want to say it for, for in front of everyone or if you want me to I just you know you didn't say anything yesterday about what we're supposed to do with our mind in the book <laughs> so if you could just quickly like address that you want to just tell me now and then I say please at least ask me in front of everyone and they ask you know because it, it really tickles me and I have to laugh because it, and I always say that is the question I sometimes get the sense that students are expecting there's one thing I'm going to tell them to Mm. do with their mind that's going to solve this problem of the mind in the post. Yeah. And it's exactly what mom says, you know, they think Shavasana is creating the spinning mind. But what I, I like to use the idea of the millennial mind that we all have, no matter what generation we are. And I was just thinking about a kind of earlier reference. And the image that popped into my mind was that Dorothea Lang, black and white photograph from the Great Depression of a mother, mm-hmm. and her hand is on her face and she's holding a child, and there's two children turned away. Mm-hmm. This image for me, when I think about that era, for example, which is the era of our grandparents or great grandparents, you know, this woman in my projection, didn't have any trouble sitting still with silence Hmm. because she lived in a time where maybe she had a radio, but there was no television and there was no internet. So there was no telephone. So she had probably in her life a lot more practice Uh, in her children, for example, had just already spent unimaginable amounts of time Learning to be with silence, Mm -hmm. and not that they were meditating, but that they—it was a familiar space for them.
0: Yeah, it was her norm. Mm -hmm. It was
2: a norm, Mm -hmm. and now in our millennial mind, I think that's also, for example, why sitting for many people—you know—not to mention the fact that most people aren't comfortable sitting; they can't find a place where their body is not talking to them or their back's not talking to them, but. It's just that we're so used to now that we will be, you know, you're on the airplane, you have a movie, kids in cars now have movies, we have our phones in front of us, we're watching television, we have, it's like, we don't even have the experience what it is to be like where I'm sitting here and not receiving any input.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: So for some reason, I find the restorative pose is a way that it kind of looks like doing something. So it satisfies that part of our brain that thinks we need to be doing something at all times. That's really
0: smart. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's sort of a luxurious invitation, the props and like being supported. And, you know, it's not sitting straight upright, which is so hard for so many of us to do on the floor. But what I do
2: believe, and I say this to my students is that Yes, it's an it's a wonderfully delicious practice, and I practice every day. Twenty minutes is my goal, one pose every day. But honestly, it's that's the beginning of trying to learn how to do it off the mat. I do think that we can cultivate a sense of actively choosing to switch from sympathetic to parasympathetic, or actively choosing to how I sometimes say it is de-accelerate or de you know, unspiral ourselves when mm. we find ourselves getting outraged, upset, wound up to unwind ourselves when we're walking around in the world because that's where it really matters. Like it's you know, we have to learn it's literally a practice. We learn how to do it on the map. But mm-hmm. I mean, I I had a funny <laughs> laugh at myself moment yesterday because I I I've been a little bit under the weather for a week and I Know that I need to just climb in bed for three days, but I haven't been able to bring myself to do it. And I was running around my apartment yesterday thinking, I need to rest, I need to rest. And then I had this thought bubble come out so clearly and it said, I don't know how to rest. Mm -hmm. And then I laughed at myself because the reason I'm sick is because I was in Paris teaching a restorative yoga teacher training. So, like, I do know something about rest, (laughs) but the thing thing is what I meant by, I don't know how to rest was yes, I know how to do restorative yoga and I have been trying, you know, I have been uh, doing this past week poses to try to boost my immune system, but it's a bigger rest that I'm looking for. I don't know how to let go of all of the perfectionism and the list of a thousand things and like we were planning on having friends over last night. It had been planned for weeks and you know, I don't know how to cancel that. So instead I just say it's okay and people come and mom called me yesterday afternoon and she said, what are you doing? You know, are you in bed? And I said, no, no, we're still having people over. So I'm redecorating my living room. (laughs) It's (laughs) like, that's the, I don't know how to rest. I don't know how to let go of the anxiety I have that these people are going to come into my apartment and think my couch is in the wrong place. So I need to rearrange everything. That's what I mean by I don't know how to rest. And I I don't know if you agree, Mom. What do you? How do you see this? That restorative is kind of a way that we begin to learn that, but the hope is that it becomes a broader project in our lives.
0: Well,
1: right now I'm just reflecting on how I imprinted that pattern from me to you as you were growing up. <laughs> yeah. The eternal list in your brain that everything is just as important, like the angle of the throw pillows and my relationship, my main relationship in my life. Like, which should I put my energy into first? It's all the same importance. So I love on many levels hearing what you say. I like it just as a listener, intellectually listening to your way you talk about yoga. But of course, as a mom, it just delights my heart that maybe I didn't ruin you too badly (laughs) (laughs) with this crazy yoga stuff. But I do, to take your question, it is an art to live in a fresh, measured way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I take two intentions about this time of year for the next year. I take one for the planet and I take a personal one. So some of the ones for the planet have been try to fill my car up once a month, which I could do. Cause I live in a place where I can walk places. And, and one year was get solar ba- uh, panels on the, on the roof. And, and so for next year, for me, that one is to use less water because water is the new oil. Water is the new, newly aware. We're nearly aware of how much water we have on the earth and that we need to ne- There's never too much water to waste is the, motto. So that's my one. But the one for personally, which has been anywhere from floss twice a day instead of once, my one for next year, well, no, the one for 2017 was make the generous choice. Whenever I had the option to make the generous choice with time and energy and money. Hmm. And I have loved how I felt when I do that. It's, changed, it's really changed me in a delicious way to, to note how I do have a gift of time, and I do have a gift of energy, and I do have the gift of of not being on the edge of paycheck to paycheck at this point. I'm very, very fortunate, and I realize that, and manifesting to make the generous choices changed my life. But the one I have for twenty eighteen, Lizzie, which is came up for me while you were speaking I was reminded of it, is softer and slower, hmm. just softer and slower about everything and I had that experience today. I you know I was at this long, very intense summit for three days, and I flew home and, you know, and I was going to get right up and go to my spinning class, which I love to do. And I just woke up and I didn't sleep that well, and I just went, "No, I'm going to be softer and slower today." And I even said to Joe, my special person, that I'm just not going to be a slave to the list today, and if I don't unpack my suitcase today, it'll be there tomorrow. I'm going to be softer and slower today. I'm still in my pajamas. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the practice merges with life. And that's the process of integration that happens when you practice long enough. And with a clear intention, there isn't really a difference between the mat and the world. You aren't a different person on your mat than you are in the world. You're not a different person on the meditation cushion than you are in the world. And when that gap begins to narrow, that, that is a sign that the practice has taken root in you and that you have merged with the yoga.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I was going to say that that response that you had, that sort of innate response sounds like the practice is living in you that all those years have really, that it's, it is very natural to you now to make the more integrated choice for yourself.
1: Let me say it this way. It's more frequent.
0: Hmm. That's good. That's really good. I think yeah. I think we all hope for that. This kind of brings up another question for me, which either one of you could start and answer, which is just, how do you think restorative, your restorative practice has changed over the years and kind of looking at it as I'm sure there might be some young listeners out there thinking like, well, I love my hour and a half power class, yoga class every day. And and, uh, I don't know if I have 20 minutes to lay in Shavasana. So, you know, do you feel like there are different benefits at different stages of life or different approaches for different stages of life or or just has it changed for you in different stages of life?
2: Well, mom can probably speak more to that because she's had a longer experience. But I will just say, I wanted to say two things. First of all, about the idea of uh, not having time to practice. I sometimes say, especially I teach sometimes women's workshops and they say, you know, I have kids and I have a house and a husband and a dog and an aging mother. I mean, all the things that we have. Mm -hmm. And I like to ask the question, you know, what are we teaching our children? And especially if you have daughters, what are you teaching your daughters that a woman's role, she's not allowed to rest? Mm -hmm. I think that's really profound. Mm -hmm. What does it mean when you model to your children That mom is going to go in this room and close the door for half an hour. Now she needs time for herself.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: It's true. (laughs) The other thing I was going to say is that about how the practice changes is that last weekend I was teaching at Ashtanga Yoga Paris, which was a which is a wonderful studio that invited me, and I actually had some hesitation saying yes to come give a restorative training there. And I asked mom for her advice, and she replied with a resounding yes. Of course. I said, you know, do you think anyone will come to the workshop? It's st- all the shtongies. And she said, yes, you should do it. They need it more than anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it's a contrast, but it was such a warm and lovely welcome there. And what I really enjoyed about the workshop is that I had actually a lot of young people, which is a funny term because I think that term always means sort of younger than you. (laughs) So I'm 34 now and I had women in their 20s, which is not so typical for my workshops. And I really enjoyed because the studio has, I think, attracts maybe a younger audience a lot of women in their twenties, you know, a lot of people in their twenties doing this a stronger practice. And what I liked about having a room, a slightly younger room is it felt somehow a little bit like a revolution. It felt radical. And I re- really even talked about it. And I used this uh, phrase for the first time, the restorative, you know, this is a restorative revolution and that it's so important that we focus on this and take it seriously The younger we are, the better, Hmm. because that's when we have the chance to make lasting impact on our lives, the lives around us. It's from a place, you know, mom likes to say after you do a restorative pose or 20 minutes of Shavasana and you come, you're in that bliss state where you're settled and rooted in your own being, you can't do any harm in the world from that place. Hmm. So it is an act of revolution to change the outside world when we first begin with ourselves. So I think that it's just the the degree to which we focus on the practice. And then the last thing I'll say is that the assignment I gave my students at that workshop, which I think I probably got it in some way from mom, was the idea to take a period of time, a fixed period of time. So I said now, but, you know, between now and Christmas, every time you're going to practice, I know everyone doesn't practice every day, but if you make time in your life to do some yoga, the first 20 minutes of it is going to be Shavasana. Hmm. So you take that as a challenge for yourself and then you do a 20 minute shavasana. And then if you have another 20 minutes to practice, OK, then you can do your sun salutations. But you do it as an experiment like a scientist. And then the day after Christmas, you take stock. What how what was that experience like to let myself receive deep rest for a few weeks? Hmm. And how do I feel in my body and what are the positive or maybe, neg- you know, what were the effects of this this
0: conscious choice.
2: Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I like that. I might take on that challenge. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what you said about the uh, concept of a mom taking time for herself, I think is so important and cannot be underscored enough in terms of modeling self-care for your kids and also modeling self-respect. I do feel that if you are just the Full time caretaker, and you also have a job, and you take care of the house, and you are part time chauffeur for the kids, and you don't model any time of putting yourself first. I can't imagine that your kid eventually won't sort of just think you're really there just to serve them, and that's your whole purpose. And I don't think that's very inspiring in terms of wanting to become a parent, you know? So I, I just, I just want to say that that resonates for me a lot. And is something I am consciously trying to work on more and more is I was reading a neuroscience book that said that when, when they do brain scans, when children are asked to think of their mothers, the part of the brain lights up, it's the same part of what as when they think of themselves. Mm. So really like they're so connected to mother for a certain period of time, they don't even see her as separate from them.
2: Well, I have a wonderful, she's a student of moms and she's now become a friend of mine who lives in London. She teaches yoga and she actually teaches yoga for kids is her focus. And she's this fiery Israeli woman. And what she says, she has three teenage boys and she says she militantly likes to practice restorative yoga in the center of the living room in the middle of the storm, Mm. because she thinks that that's really important that they see she's doing it and that they also can participate. And Mm -hmm. she does, it's kind of like
0: (laughs) guerrilla restorative. I love the image of her. I like that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I've been thinking, I've actually been thinking I should I usually meditate when Sophia's at school, but I've been thinking that I should meditate right before she gets up. So that when she wakes up, like I'm sitting, you know, and meditating first thing and she can see it and she might still be in a calm enough state that she might even kind of get it. I want to sit there and try it too. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Andrea, you
1: reminded me of a sweet memory. One time I was meditating. I didn't have a yoga room to myself. So I moved around. I would go downstairs sometimes before the kids got up and do it in the living room. And I was sitting in front of the fireplace meditating. And my, one of my children, my, one of my sons came down the stairs and he saw me, he said, mommy, can I meditate with you? And I said, Mm -hmm. yes. So I sat in this little half lotus, you know, I said, what should we meditate on? And he said, a motorcycle. And that was what I <laughs> wanted to meditate on. And then, of course, to me, it came to me, you know, the art of motorcycle maintenance, This mm-hmm. Zen book. Mm-hmm. Okay, it doesn't matter the object. You know, the sutras even say it, it, uh, uh, meditate on whatsoever thing pleases you because that will draw the mind's attention, right? Yeah. It says that in Patanjali. So we sat there for about, I don't know, t- 20 seconds. And then he said, Mommy, I think we should bet- we should meditate on a rose. So we sat there for another 30 seconds Aww. <laughs> and it's such a sweet memory that his first instinct was, Oh, that's what mommy's doing. I'm doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Because the thing, of course, we all know this and it's true for our children and certainly it's true for our students. It's so much less about our words than we realize and so much more about what we do. And the Buddhists say, the only thing a man owns are his actions or a woman owns are her actions. And so it's it's when when they see us or when our students sometimes see that we're sad or we go to class and we might say, I lost an important person in my life two days ago and I want to teach this class. But I want you to know that that's the space I'm in and I really want to be here with you now. You know, sometimes I don't believe in sharing that our personal life necessarily in our classes, but sometimes to share What's really true for us in that way its another level of intimacy with the student, if if appropriate and done under certain conditions, can be really profoundly inspiring and connecting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's important that we realize that the practice of yoga is something we do all day. And that a lot of it has to do with our willingness to be deeply intimate with ourselves, to be in our belly, to, to be in our heart, to be at the center of our brain and to notice and to be intimate with ourselves. And that creates a certain healthy transparency that immediately affects the people around us. Mm mm-hmm. Mm hmm. So, it's like a, a bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, and a karma yoga of action from Kri. Karma, the word karma comes from Kri, which means to do spiritually, to act. That restorative yoga, the practice of it, the sharing of it, is, is a gift that we have give ourselves in the world. It's like Lizzie said, when you're come out of shavasana you are no longer physiologically anxious it's impossible to be in that parasympathetic state and then we become the ahimsa because ahimsa is not just not harming people i think implied in in the practice of ahimsa is is to prevent harm right to prevent harm yeah and, and we we meet a person or situation in that state. Perhaps we prevent harm, the harm of judgment, the harm of anger, the harm of fear. We prevent going there. We live in a, in a different state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would love to know a little bit about your new book. It comes out in a few weeks. I believe you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. It's called Restore and Rebalance. And just, I'd love to know what the thought process was behind this book, what you're trying to convey.
1: Well, I wrote a restorative book. I started writing it in 1993 and it was published in 1995, Relax and Renew. And I use it as the textbook in my trainings. And I realized that I had, learned a thing or two since 1993, Mm -hmm. changed some of my props I had worked with and developed other approaches to other poses. So I felt ready to write another book. The first book, it's still valid. It, It gives you groups of practices for menstrual cramps or jet lag or pregnancy or fatigue. But this new book, has some poses that are require a little more experienced students. Some of most of them are, I don't know if most of them, there are poses in the second book that require a higher level of expertise in the practice of yoga. Mm. And it is arranged in a different way. It is arranged in poses in which the head is above the heart poses in which the heart and the head are on the same level and poses in which the heart are higher than the head. And that's how they're grouped. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And And I write about the effects of those poses, why I chose that. I will say that I had a fantastic photo producer there. The photo shoot was produced by Lizzie. Oh, yay. She did a fantastic job. And the pictures are I believe extraordinary. I can take no credit for them. The photographer is the same one who did the poses in my book, Thirty Essential, which you may or may not know, but those do, are quite
0: yeah. mm-hmm.
1: quite beautiful, i I think. And he was our photographer. and the actual photos it, in a way that pleases me deeply, exude the mood of the pose. I mean, would you agree, Lizzie? I, you look at those poses and you feel relaxed.
2: He did a really wonderful job.
1: You did too, sweetheart. David Martinez. David Martinez
2: is his name.
0: Oh, I didn't realize it was David Martinez. Yeah, we worked with him a lot. Yeah, he is the best. The best of the best.
1: Yeah, so anyway, that's, that's my book. My recent book from Shambhala now. I'm published by Shambhala Press, which is new for this book. I'd really love to hear feedback from people when they look at it and see if they find it useful. One thing I really like about
2: the new book, Mom, is that it's 20 poses and five of them are Shavasana, which sometimes surprises people. Yeah. The degree to which that mom teaches and, and she probably could teach 10 variations. So mom really has an expertise in varied proppings for Shavasana. And so that's a really fun place to start even before you look at the other poses.
0: I just have to say, I just am thinking what, back when I worked at Yoga Journal, you know, I was fortunate enough that my very first yoga teacher used to prop all of us in Shavasana. And so when I started working at Yoga Journal, I was the only one who would go and get all my blankets for Shavasana. I would like put up, zip up my hoodie, put my hood up, bolster under my knees, blankets under my arms, blankets over my body. And... I can't tell you how much people made fun of me. <laughs> it was just like in the workplace. It just seemed so high maintenance to everyone else. But I knew that that's what I needed in that setting to relax.
1: Andrea, I, will, I want to
0: send you a copy. Oh, thank you. I would love that. So offline,
1: offline, of course,
0: tell me where. Okay, I will. Yeah, I'll email you. That would be great. That'd be great. Well, anyway, I, I just, I just want to thank you both for your time. I'm getting a little beep on my end. So I'm not, it's like the Mercury and retrograde a little angels are telling us it's time. (laughs) Thanks so much to both of you for being here and talking to me today. I wish you the happiest of holidays and I just appreciate you so much. Well,
1: thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. May I say a sentence that means a lot to me to end? Absolutely. And then we can all say namaste together if we want. We think that life is strong and love is fragile, but really it's the other way around. Life hangs by a thread and love holds the universe together. That's awesome. And that's awesome. I believe that in the end of all practice of meditation, yoga, all spiritual practice, is just teaching us how to love ourselves, each other, and the world. But that's all there is in the end is love. That's true. That's the ultimate residue of life. Yeah, that's something that mom said to me
2: once I called her. I was teaching in Holland and I was having some blip in teaching. And I, I called my hotline one 800 dial Yogi, which is FaceTiming with mom during the break. And she said, I, I, I love this line, mom, you said to me, just love yourself, love your students
0: and everything will be okay. Mm, that's so nice. That's really, and I think people will love hearing that too, that reminder. Yeah. All right.
1: Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll be the first to get the next download. Jason and I are working on a best of episode for next week. And then I'm excited to move into the new year, to move into 2018 with you. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for producing this podcast. And until next week, enjoy your practice. So most, most, of the time, we and dime. Don't give each other the time of day. We're in line and constantly wine. Can someone please tell me why, that we only try, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, only today, on Christmas Day, only today, do we
1: share, why only
0: today?